Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, I sit down with my good friend, Jordan Duggar better known as Doug Aesthetics on Instagram. And we talked about a lot of really cool topics, uh, not only for general clients, but also for coaches listening to the show. So we dove into his show prep, which he crushed. He looked shredded. Um, And we dove into exactly how we did that, not only from a perspective of how do you get as lean as possible as an advanced lifter, but also how did you maintain as much muscle mass? What was your training split? How did you balance intensity and volume? How much cardio did you do? How the hell did you get there by eating four to... 550 grams of carbs a day. Yes, I know there's a lot of people pissed listening to this, but he did consume 500 grams of carbs per day during his prep diet. Um, But it's all relative. And we talk about that, like energy balance is energy balance, which means that there's an energy gap going from a maintenance to a deficit. It doesn't matter where that is because physiologically, person to person, it's the exact same thing. So we touch on the science behind how he could be eating that much and I could be over here eating 100 grams of carbs, but we're still both in a physiological deficit and that's the key point. So we kind of dive into that. I know that was kind of a side tangent, but we dove into that. We dove into his prep. We dove into um, separating advanced and beginners as far as lifting and diet goes. So what makes a dieter or lifter advance and what changes at that point when you transition from being a beginner to an intermediate to an advanced lifter and what we do with our clients. We dove into his actual personal story, which got really interesting talking about um, just a life of partying, a life of trouble, um, some very tragic situations that happened in his life that really created a complete 360 and he turned his life completely around to be as successful and happy as he is today. Uh, We dove into his relationship with Aaron and how they are successfully married, living together and working and building a business together. And there is so much info in this podcast. I mean, we really went in for just over an hour on everything you can think about fitness, business, self growth and relationship development. And I think you guys are going to take a lot away from this, not only because there's so much information inside of it, but Jordan and I are very good friends. So it comes off as a very natural conversation, which I always find is something I appreciate when I listen to podcasts. So I think you guys are going to enjoy it for that reason as well. So if you enjoy this podcast, please do me just one huge favor. Take a screenshot of the episode right now. Head over to your Instagram and tag us both on your story. His is going to be at Doug Aesthetics, so D-U-G-G Aesthetics. Mine is going to be at Cody.BoomBoom. You can find us both there and our links uh, to our Instagrams in the description of this episode. Tag us both in your story. We want to share it on our story. We want to thank you for listening. And without any further ado, let's get on to this amazing conversation with my really good friend, Jordan Duggar. I'm excited to have you on because you know what I think it's funny is I was thinking about this actually yesterday because we just podcasted for years. I was thinking that our audiences must be very similar. And I think they were similar before we even started like collaborating on anything. Because I remember the first time I did a podcast on your podcast, 
you were like, man, everybody's loving it, blah, blah, blah. And then you came on mine and I had all these people hitting me up of like, you got to do another one with Jordan. You got to do another one with Jordan. So I was like, okay. And it's been like on my mind forever. So I'm happy to finally have you back on the podcast, man. Yeah, likewise. I totally agree. It's funny. I had the same uh, realization and, and kind of interpretation from that too, man. So I'm pumped to be back, dude. You know, you and I think so similarly. I just love getting to talk to you, man. So anytime I have that opportunity, I'm going to take advantage. Yeah, hell yeah, man. I appreciate it. And I feel the exact same way, man. That's why I'm excited about um, I'm excited about the event, but I'm also excited to get you guys out here next year once the facility's up and running. Cause that'll be really fun to have you guys out and film content and doing everything live. I can't wait for that. That's going to be dope for sure. Yeah. Um, so dude, I want to get into your story a little bit because that's something we actually skipped over quite a bit. I think on the first time we did this episode and you have a really kind of humbling background that just shows that like really anything is possible. And I think when people can hear where somebody comes from and see where they're, they're at now, no matter what that journey is like, it gives them ammunition and fuel and just motive to actually be something and do something. So you have a powerful one. So I want to dive in your story, man. So like, fill us in with like, really just what were you where were you at before fitness? And like, how did that lead you into fitness and coaching and all this stuff? Yeah, so I'll try to keep this abridged and entertaining. Uh, so basically, I had a pretty rough childhood, you know, and it's funny how when you do kind of grow up in that setting, you have trouble acknowledging it until someone else does, right? It's not until I'm around Erin, for example, and I'm talking about some childhood memories, and she's like, what the fuck? Mm. I'm like, yeah, doesn't everybody do this thing? <laughs> like, uh, so yeah, you know, my childhood was kind of uh, chaotic in, in terms of like relationships. You know, my parents got divorced at a pretty young age. And up until the time I was around like 11 or 12, things were fairly normal. Um, father had issues with alcohol and drugs, you know, that kind of typical story parents get divorced. And then it just kind of turned into like a shit show. So my mom had like multiple, uh, my mom had some mental health issues that she was going through as well. So multiple, you know, uh, pseudo dads in the picture, like I can count like seven, eight, nine father figures. And man, it was just kind of chaos. So like, for example, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I was like 14 years old. And it was the night before basketball game. And I got woken up at like 3am by my stepfather at the time. And he had me come out to his barn to build a chicken coop at 3am. And we didn't even have chickens. Uh, he was just on this like coked out bender. And so I was up from like three, you know, to 7am building a chicken coop. And the whole time I'm thinking like, we don't even have chickens and we never got chickens or anything else. So like being around these kind of weird influences, especially in terms of like a father figure, I was able to interpret and learn like the things that these guys do create really weird reactions from everybody. Like people feel really shitty. People cry. The cops get called. And so it was, I was able to like interpret that data from a young age and be like, okay, I'm going to do everything exactly opposite. Mm -hmm. I heard a funny quote one time that was like, or it's kind of a, a, a arbitrage or a uh, like little, little mo memento, I want to say. So basically it goes like this. You had two brothers who grew up in the same household and it was a household with an alcoholic father. You know, one kid grew up to become an alcoholic and the other one didn't. The other one went on to do great things, uh, really made a lot out of his life. And both kids were asked, you know, why did you turn out the way that you did? Well, the alcoholic said, well, I watched what my father did. And the non-alcoholic also said, I watched what my father did. So, you know, I was able to luckily kind of take that route and say, okay, I'm, I'm seeing these things and I'm going to try to go the opposite direction. But that didn't happen early on. <laughs> I actually went that exact direction. You know, I started uh, smoking cigarettes when I was like 11 and drinking, you know, I was smoking weed, doing like pretty hard drugs to at a young age, like in middle school, you know, I was messing around with like cocaine and all these things. So that just like led a really chaotic early part of my life where I was like kicked off the basketball team in high school. I had to switch schools, basically kicked out of school my sophomore year and throwing, throwing into like all this chaos where I really didn't have any support system at home. Um, my mom was on welfare. So I was like, I understood what it was like to be really poor as well, which is something I really value nowadays. 
and yeah, man, just crazy, crazy stories around that. Uh, what happened for me when it really clicked was I was just out of high school. I think I was like 19 years old and I was playing college football, you know, trying to relive the glory days and really wanted to just go and do that. I wanted to play football because I knew girls liked it. <laughs> and so I'm, uh, I'm doing like hard drugs that night and I'm, I'm really drunk. And my friends and I decided to jump into a pickup truck and go from like one party to the next. And we're driving and one of my friends is in the bed of the truck in a pickup truck. You know, I'm from a small like rural town. So I was back home partying, you know, if you will. And so we're driving, you know, kids in the back of the truck and something happened where I had to swerve. And I don't know if it was like I was hallucinating. I don't even remember. But my friend fell out of the back of the truck and we we're going about 60 miles an hour and accelerating. And I remember seeing in the rearview mirror him flying out of the truck and immediately my heart just sunk, you know, and again, I was like on Coke, I was on a lot of alcohol and I, I just freaked out. So I stop, I turn around, I'll never forget this scene of my friend standing in the middle of the road with his entire scalp basically peeled off. And there was just blood. I mean, it was the most graphic thing that I've ever seen personally. So we, he gets in the truck and it, while I'm driving to the hospital, cause that was my first instinct. I don't give a fuck about anything else. I want to get him to the hospital. I had all these thoughts running through my head, you know, it was like almost like this still moment, like you see in a movie where that drive seemed to take eternity. And it gave me enough time to reflect on everything I was doing. Like, I thought I was going to jail. I mean, I'd already pretty much made up in my mind I was going to prison, right? Because I knew that I was fucked when I get to the hospital. And I wasn't sure if he was going to make it. Crazy how it turned out. Fortunately, uh, the fact that we were going so fast allowed him to land almost on this like airplane like plane. So it allowed him to skid into the road rather than, than it being an impact. So his skull was intact. His body was fine. He had to have like some, some staples and stitches in his head, but no recurring damage. He was completely fine. And his parents chose because they knew that we were all drinking not to pursue action or anything else. So I ended up getting off the hook with that. That's when things clicked, man. And that's when things really turned around. So I know I probably skipped over some parts, but yeah, definitely some tribulation early that allowed me to um, confront those inner influences, if you will. Oh, that's so crazy, man. I, I love the part, um, the analogy used about the, the two sons, because everything in life really comes down to perspective. And it's how you perceive the experiences that happen in your life, and how you want to use them. Um, I mean, you obviously didn't make that decision right away. But how could you, you know, at such a young age, it's not really, it's not very common for people to think like logically and say like, Oh, this is bad. I don't want to do it. Usually that influence takes over and you end up doing similar things. But um, I mean, thankfully, obviously, it didn't go further down the route. But how did this all turn into fitness? Because obviously, you yeah. had a ton of negative things happen in your life. You finally decided this is too much. You've made a, a good shift. I hope people listening can see those things and understand that, like, I always say, like, YOLO is such a cheesy saying now because Drake blew it up. But like, you really, you truly only have one life. And we only have one reaction to every situation that comes up in life. And you truly have to stop, slow down, think like you did that night. And I love that image because it kind of put an image in my head and I try to like slow down quite often to like really think about what I'm about to do with everything. But that's how we become successful. It's like we yeah. stop, we think, and we actually make decisions that are going to carry on. Um, and you finally made that one. And obviously you've had a, a, a long path of success and happiness since then, man. Like watching you from afar is really cool. See your growth, see your family, everything evolving. Um, so where did fitness come into play? Yeah. Thinking. So if there's, you know, there's a few things that I really look back on my childhood and I'm grateful for, especially for my dad, even though like he'd been a big negative part of my life for a long time, he was a, a bodybuilder, right? Mm -hmm. So he was obsessed with himself. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> and I, I definitely recognize some traits that I carry of his just being in that bodybuilding mindset. Like he, he, for example, in his house had this giant frame picture of himself hanging above his bed, like hitting, <laughs> hitting a side chest. <laughs> 
dude so so i have to i have to stop real quick because <laughs> you we were talking about this before the podcast you and i have so many similarities like as soon as you said that thing about aaron like i laughed because i have some stories that i'll say and shannon will look at me like what the fuck like <laughs> but my dad so my parents split up when i was young too i'm very similar to my dad in many ways as well um we had like a rough outgoing for a while but then we you know we're really close now but he always had this picture so he was in a bodybuilding but he owned a karate studio he always had this picture of him kicking a guy in the face <laughs> like no shit in like the living room right next to like above the mantle but everybody that walked in could see it and he would say something about it. It's just like him just fucking, oh, dude, it's hilarious. That is so funny. Yeah. But it's very similar. So continue. Sorry. Yeah. Well, he had a, but anyway, so that's so funny. He actually would have other pictures of himself, like hanging up around the house as well. Like that's really weird. You know, narcissistic tendencies mm-hmm. is the only way you can identify it. But he owned a gym too for a period of my life. And I was like, probably, I was probably like 11 to 14. He had a small gym in our, our real small hometown called, it's funny. It was supposed to be called Jordan's Fitness Center but uh, he was going to name it after me. But then like, I think he forgot and the gym started to get put up and it was like the name changed to Eagle Fitness Center. And it's kind of funny because I was like, man, I thought that this was going to be named after yeah. me. <laughs> but anyways, uh, and I hung out in there every day, you know, after school, I was just in there with these, it was a grungy kind of grimy bodybuilding gym, if you will. And I would be around these older dudes who I just really started to pick up on. You know, at like 12, 13, I started lifting weights and I started to realize like, oh, protein, that's a thing that's kind of important. So I can remember just like making these giant protein shakes with probably like 150 grams of protein and just chugging them every night before bed, like not knowing any, any difference <laughs> when I'm like, you know, 13, 14. So that's really where the obsession started to take hold. And that really carried on into, um, into high school because that was the escape, right? I mean, I know you can, you can relate. I finally found some area where I could go into and like nothing else really mattered. It was, it definitely was a, it was an escape, whether that was healthy or not. It definitely helped me get through a lot of hard times early in life. Well, what happened was I became so obsessed with it at an early age that I started to create these um, limiting beliefs within myself. And I almost started to make incongruent excuses for why I didn't want to pursue fitness. So after high school, I started training people on the side and I knew that was my passion, but I kind of told myself because I didn't believe in myself, well, I don't want to show where I sleep. You know, like that's my passion. That's what I love. So I'm going to just take the practical route. You know, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get, you know, a different degree. So I started studying nutrition in college. Now I wanted to be you know, a dietitian, and that's the route that I wanted to go. But again, limiting beliefs came up. I really had no positive influences to say otherwise. So I switched. I switched to economics. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go into finance. I'm going to try to make bank. And it wasn't until really, you know, I continued to train people on the side. And, and you know, every free minute I had, I was learning just for my own sake, just because I loved it. And I wanted to figure out how to manipulate my own body. Uh, so it wasn't until like probably 25, 26 that I really start working with clients hands-on from a nutrition standpoint, testing my application, seeing if I actually had what it took. And it wasn't until 27 that I get in contact with Aaron, who's finally somebody in my life was like, no, motherfucker, you should be doing this. Like, this is something you're great at. It's something you're passionate about. So finally, that's where the limiting beliefs started to come down and, and things started to progress from there. Damn, I didn't know Aaron had such a big influence on you getting into fitness, to be honest with you. Yeah. That's really cool. So like, one of the things I wrote on our notes was like trouble to success. And that's kind of like the image you've just painted for us. And you've kind of showed us how like, it started as like a troubled childhood, troubled teenage years, probably troubled like young adult, and then finally shifting over. How often do you like recall these past events that fucked with you to be able to almost give you motivation? Because I see a lot of people that it, it almost like deteriorates them, right? It demotivates them and they get so hung up on it when it can be such a good fuel, which is one of the reasons why I want to talk about this with you. Because you look at all this stuff 
and some of it is horrible, but like you use it as a fuel to continually get better. Like how often do you like go through that with your head? And is there any battle with that? Like of making sure you use it as motivation? Does that make sense? You know, I'm probably going to answer this in a different way than you might expect. I honestly never think about it. It's almost like rep- repressed memories. Mm. And the only time it comes up is when Aaron and I are in this very uh, vulnerable environment where her and I kind of sharing things and, and it kind of comes up when I allow it. You know, and, and there was a, a quote that I, I think about all the time, and it's basically, you should be pulled by your vision rather than pushed by your pain. And that reminds me that anytime, like I start to think about these past experiences, I get a negative reaction. It doesn't necessarily push me. It starts to almost pull me down. Mm. And I start to feel just these negative emotions around it. So I've like created this protective mechanism in my brain where like I shut that shit out. Only thing I focus on is being pulled in the direction and the vision that I have. And I know that I have these deep internal subconscious cues, I'm sure, that are being driven by these experiences. But I honestly don't allow myself to go there because I'd rather, again, be pulled by the vision that I have and what I want to create rather than to be, be pulled or be, be pushed by these negative experiences. Do you like what advice? Because I like that, man. Do you have any advice for people of like, um, I almost call it like horse blinders, right? Like, and I, I talk about this a little bit too. Like in my life, I have horse blinders where I just kind of block everything else out and just do what I need to do to, again, like you said, move forward. Do you have advice for people on that of how they can do what you're doing instead of drowning themselves in the thoughts? For sure. I think it comes from, well, if you look on like a biochemical level, the brain, it's, it's pretty simple to hack yourself, if I feel like, because the brain thrives on biofeedback. We, we accomplish small little things that then create almost like a, it's, you know, a, a neurological um, inhibition. So like, you know, serotonin upregulation, so dopamine hits, like you've got to find what it is you're trying to create. And understand that knocking off small little things on that checklist, you're, you'll become addicted to it. Those small little wins. And it can be anything. Like for me, um, anytime like I feel like I'm in a rut, I'll, I'll give myself a fitness goal, right? So I'll give myself an objective, like, hey, in 12 weeks, I'm going to do this cut. I start building up those little micro wins, those little, little uh, momentum builders. And man, it starts to create this fuel. And I've noticed that with my clients, and I think it can work with anybody. But when people get too hung up on the end goal, right? So I'm, I'm looking only at the finish line, rather than appreciating those little micro wins. Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot in terms of like how our serotonogenic systems work. And, you know, he talks about how a lot of, a lot of things in the wild have the same serotonin systems as humans. So for example, like, uh, like lobsters, I'm sure you probably read this in, uh, in, in, or I think it's uh, 12 rules for life. Lobsters, when they are battling over territory, what'll happen is they'll lose a fight. And then those lobsters, again, they have the same, uh, uh neuro, neuro, or, uh, the frontal cortex as a human. So basically, like their serotonin systems work identical. So what will happen is they'll lose a territory battle, and then their shoulders will start to slump. And when their shoulders start to slump, they start to produce less serotonin. When they start to produce less serotonin, then they're less likely to win that next battle. So this will happen throughout the lobster's life until it eventually dies. It gets killed in battle. But the opposite occurs. So if, if that lobster wins a territory battle, their shoulders start to pin back. They stand more straight up. And then they start to produce more serotonin in the brain. So it's only logical that like, as long as we can start to keep little micro commitments to ourselves, then the, then the blinders come on because then we're just chasing that next hit. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I fucking love that, dude. I haven't read, this is the second time you've told me about that 12 rules for life and I haven't got it yet. So I need to get that, but um, I'm big on that too, man. I'm big on daily routines and morning routines, as you know. And I think that it's, it, you said it perfectly momentum, right? And part of that, I think is environment too, which is, was my next thing that I wanted to ask you. Was there a point where you had to really kind of like audit your environment and be like, okay, like who is around me? What's around me? Where am I going? Like, what am I consuming? And like, be able to do that. Cause I know for me, 
when I made that shift, I stopped thinking about those things in the past. And that's what, cause I have a very similar, I, I didn't realize it, but a very similar thing to you where I don't think about a lot of the things in the past. I almost get guilty if I think about it, to be honest with you, like, me too. you know, and I think that not having that feeling helps me just focusing on now and just focusing on the present, what I've been doing and, and how my life has changed and stuff like that. So do you have like, was there like an environmental audit you had to go through as well? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't hang out with anybody. Like if you, if I would uh, flash back maybe three years, there's not a single thing from an environment standpoint, maybe four years, that's the same. Not the same people, aside from my mom, my, my brother, my family, you know, who I'm close with, not a single thing is the same. So yeah, and I think that comes from momentum as well. When you cut one person out of your life who maybe had some negative, uh, you know, negative feedback or negative uh, uh, result in your life, you realize how powerful that is. You're like, oh, I just had this weight lifted. You know, or maybe you stop going to the same places that were creating the same results, going out on weekends when you know you shouldn't, right? Like once you do that once, it does become addicting because you're like, wow, look at the positive effect that that happened. And that was how I went for me. Like I had like one person I cut out and then my life immediately felt better. I felt more free and just more clear. I'm like, fuck any of these people. Like they're all gone. <laughs> and like, I'm, that's how I am nowadays. Like I only have a few select friends and a lot of my close friends are people like you, Cody, people in the industry who are on similar paths not necessarily in the industry, just have similar growth minded uh, goals. And I don't feel guilty because again, you mentioned it, like Aaron and I are getting ready to order this picture that we're going to hang in our living room that says you're going to die someday. Just to be reminded of that every day, like why waste a single day? If that person who you cut out, they have the opportunity to get on your level if they want, that's their choice. They can, and then they can come back into your life, but otherwise you can't waste the time. So true, man. I look at it like your diet. Like we talk about uh, like flexible dieting and being restrictive. And you, if, the more you restrict somebody, the more they want, right? If you mm -hmm. take something away, they want that thing. So like, for me, it was like, let me add as many positive things or people or places or, or aspects or re like things I'm reading, listening to that I can, because they influence like everything we consume influences everything us we see influences us. But it's our decision if that thing is positive or not. You know what I mean? So like, Absolutely. I feel like a lot of people choose to listen and read this. I like, I don't watch the news, for example, it's always negative shit. Like, I don't want to hear that. Like I, I've unfollowed people that just post negative shit that are just talk, drowning themselves in sorrows and all this stuff. And we could probably get into a whole rant on this, but my point well, being, is I me, think you have to add that stuff in. Yeah. And, and I, that actually reminded me of actually how this went down. So three years ago, I basically, I took a job in another city. I was living in Columbus and I took a job in Chicago and it was an opportunity where I'm like, I knew it was an opportunity to separate, separate myself from this current environment. And that was honestly one of the main reasons I took it. So went to the city, I didn't know anybody. And it was kind of a clean slate. So what I did, I still had a lot of negative thoughts rolling in and I was in a depressed mindset. I don't want to get into this, but I had another drug addiction uh, later in life. And I was like 23, 24, had a foot injury that led to me being um, addicted to pain pills. And this was like soon after that, I was just getting over that. that I still just had this like negative, almost bio, just like my biochemistry was just negative. So I took this opportunity, went to another city. And I realized that if I'm having negative thoughts, I have the opportunity to consume other people's positive thoughts. We have this opportune time in the world right now where we have all this information and, you know, and, and inspiration, all these things that are at our fingertips. So what I would do, I would literally listen to books on tape and podcasts for like eight hours a day. Like, you know, I was still working my job, but even when I'm working, I've got podcasts playing. Mm -hmm. And I swear that changed my chemistry. Like that, that went on for like a year. And I changed as a human because I consumed so many other people's thoughts that it kind of reframed how I, you know, inherently think. I do. I hundred percent agree. And I'm, it's funny, man, how many, like I, I, I've never had any battles with serious addictions or anything like that, but there was definitely a time where I like, I don't want to say I cut out music, but I changed the, even mm -hmm. the type of music I listened to. Cause I, I grew up listening to like, really, it was like 
aggressive ass punk rock and like hardcore rap. But like, if you listen to the lyrics, they're just fucking horrible. <laughs> and I even started like trying to become aware of that. You know, I'm like, okay, well, what am I listening to? And I started listening to this sounds crazy, but fucking reggae. Started listening to like more positive stuff. Started listening to podcasts and audiobooks and even fictional stuff, dude. Um, so I think that's so important. But I think one of the biggest things that stands out to me is that if you talk to almost any successful entrepreneur who's not only financially successful, but they're just actually happy, right? They're like happy with what they're doing and where yeah. they're at. They do all these little, like you said, micro wins earlier. They do all these little tiny things. So like there's people out there that I see that are like, oh, I don't have time to meditate or that's cheesy or like I'm not going to say an affirmation to myself out loud. And it's like you won't buy into this process because it makes you uncomfortable, but it works. Like it fucking works. There's a reason why people like Tony Robbins do weird things before he gets on stage or like when he wakes up and he has that little mini trampoline in his house and he bounces on it and shit yeah. like whatever you need to do, but it, it works. No, totally. And just like with fitness, one of my favorite ways to simplify fitness or, you know, physique building is the body adapts to the stimulus that it's exposed to, right? Mm -hmm. There's a reason marathon runners look the way they do. Yeah. There's a reason linebackers in the NFL look the way they do. The brain works in the same way, right? Expose it to a stimulus that you want it to adapt to. And if you're not doing that, you're not going to, you're not going to be, you're not going to change. Yeah. I love that dude. The, uh, I, I want to shift gears here, but the last thing I will say on this is just people listening, like just take this stuff seriously because I see too many people just kind of gloss over it and they don't actually pay attention to stuff, but like eliminate reality TV, eliminate negative music, eliminate like just bullshit in your life and just focus on positive. And I feel like positivity is such like a woo woo cheesy thing, but it's just like, I say it so much because it's changed my life to just think more positively. Like I do a journal practice every day called positive focus. What happened? Why is it positive? What's the lesson you learned every single day? And usually I try to find something shitty that happened because then I have to find a positive, I have to learn yeah. a lesson from it. If you can do that every day, dude, like your ability to like, uh, respond versus react is dramatically different. It's so huge. And everybody who is very successful and happy in life has this commonality. Um, but the thing I wanted to shift gears to is relationships, because you and Aaron have a great relationship. You guys are both in fitness, you guys both work together, you're both successful. So it's something that we got to pick our your brain on just because I think it's so important for people to hear. And the first thing I want to talk about is just like, really just lessons you've learned from working with your wife. I know a lot of people who want a, a, a fitness business with a couple, or they just struggle to have a business in inside of a relationship. And I don't have one, but I can imagine it's difficult. But you guys seem to be making it work really well. So I'm just curious of like, the ups and downs, the, the pros and cons, like what are the lessons you've learned? <clears throat> yeah, and I love talking about this stuff. It's one of the biggest things that Aaron and I did is became really intentional with learning each other's needs, right? We, I think you actually brought this up on our podcast is the, the five love languages. Mm -hmm. So that was a book that uh, Aaron and I had some struggles early on in our relationship where I was caring just a lot. I was just kind of a dickhead in some ways. Like she's helped mold me into a just much more uh, reasonable and logical person in a relationship setting, just getting over my own emotion. So she actually threatened me. She's like, hey, look, if you don't read this book as the five love, love languages by November, I think this was like two years ago. She's like, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> so I read it in like two days, of course. And I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. So that's number one is learning how your partner uh, wants to be received or wants to feel affection, wants to feel love, because not everybody is the same. Mm -hmm. you know, Aaron is a is very much a words of affirmation person. And I'm kind of that, but I like acts of service as well. So me learning that is huge because not, now I know how to continuously get on the same page as her. The number two thing is realizing that it's not a competition. That was huge. Like, we're competitive people as entrepreneurs. And that's honestly a big reason that drives us to do what we do. A lot of it's competition based. Um, that's what the beauty of an open market system is and the ability to go out and create a business. We want to compete with ourselves 
and compete in the marketplace. But when you're in a couple, when you're doing business with your partner, you've got to be careful not to let the competition come up. Okay, there's a quote that we always say, it's you'd be amazed at what can get accomplished when you don't care about who gets the credit. It was Dwight Eisenhower who said that. Damn. That's how the mentality that you have to have is like, it doesn't fucking matter who does it, it as long as it gets done. Um, the last thing I'll say that was huge is agreeing to disagree. And I know it sounds simple, but I'll give you an example. There, there was a, a period where Aaron and I, early on, we were arguing over like some approach to take. And I think it was over some price point on like some product or something. And finally it hit both of us. We were like, look, um, I trust you so much. I trust your opinion. I trust your judgment and your interpretation of the variables and of the data we're looking at that I trust you to make this decision. Even though if we disagree, I'm going to trust your input enough that I'm going to, we're going to run with your decision. No, I don't agree with you, but that's fine. We don't have to keep going back and forth until we convince one another of something. We can literally agree to disagree and be on the same page, you know? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people struggle with that because when you're bound to somebody for life, you almost assume that you guys should be on the same page about everything, yeah. but it's okay not to. I think the love language one is so huge. I read that book a while back too, and I think that the biggest thing I took away is that just not realizing, not just in my relationship, but we talked about this on yours with clients, but treating people how I want to be treated is not as good as treating people how they want to be treated. And I think that's the biggest thing is I'm words of affirmation. So as long as I say how I feel, Shannon should be happy, right? But she's acts of service. So like I wasn't doing shit, which meant that I didn't care, but I was saying all these things that she didn't notice. So it's like, once you can bridge that gap, man, it's just such a game changer. But something that stood out to me, man, that I want to ask you is being almost like, okay, being coached. Cause you even said like, she helped mold you. And I see a lot of people and I've even struggled with this, especially because I am a coach is like, you don't coach your partner. Like, don't try to like teach them stuff and stuff. And it's hard for people to accept and be open-minded and not stubborn. Dude, this has been a big thing for me is like being able to be molded or being able to be coached into a better husband and a better person. Like, have you guys had struggles with that or have you always been kind of open-minded? Uh, definitely haven't always been open-minded. <laughs> Again, it's, it's not until like, I think is, I think we're the same way. I have to see like a logical outcome and I have to understand it on a logical principle as to how this is going to be a positive addition to my life. And our good friend, Hannah, Hannah, Hannah Diedendorf, which uh, she's an awesome business coach in our space. And she's a, she's really smart with like NLP and relationship coaching. Mm -hmm. She's helped us work through a lot of this and the idea of, look, for example, um, any time that like I'm, I'm to a point now where I want Aaron to literally train me like a monkey. <laughs> I've seen how much positivity comes out of that as a whole and how much happier I am. So when I do certain things that she likes, she gives me positive affirmation. She'll come up and hug me like, oh, Jordan, that was great. Like, thank you for doing that. I know I'm being trained, but it still feels good. I'm like, great. Like, keep doing that. Um, or for example, like if I come up and I, I hug her and I do something that seems just inadequate, for example, like as guys, a lot of times we'll like smack our loved ones on the butt. And to a girl, that seems very uh, just, you know, not insignificant. It's just something. But as guys, that's actually a thing that we're doing to show affection. So that's got to, we've got to create biofeedback loops and actual, like, we've got, we've got to reward that behavior because we're trying to show affection and love. So Erin now, anytime I do that, she'll come up and she'll say, hey, thank you for loving me. You know, I appreciate you doing that. Like, so we create these little tendencies with each other where we give each other positive affirmation on things that they do. Because look, I want to see Erin and her best self. She wants to see me in my best self. And I trust that so much that if she's given me positive affirmation, I know it's because she's trying to develop me into this person that she knows I can be. So I'm going to listen. I'm going to be coachable because I trust her. You know, and I think if you trust your partner on that level, you've got to allow each other to coach each other. That's so much like I respect the hell out of that because that's so much awareness and communication, which is really, really hard for people to have. And I'll be the first to admit that's tough dude, to be able to 
really like, like, I hate to say this because I usually don't have an ego, but to like drop your ego and be okay. Like being taught and like knowing you're wrong and just like having that awareness and communication, man. Like that's, I think so applicable to everybody, like anybody who has a relationship, obviously, but to every relationship in life is just being able to drop down that ego and accept that you don't know everything. And like, you should be open to learning. For sure, man. Here's another breakthrough that we had is that I think it's important to go like after arguments to reflect on the argument to find out, of course, like, hey, what are actions we could have taken to make that a little bit of less chaos, you know, and here, what we figured out is like a lot of times as guys, especially me, Aaron's a very driven individual, we both are. And I don't know if you run into this, Cody, but sometimes I just want attention. But I'm doing it in a weird way where I'm not like saying, hey, I want attention. I'm just being kind of moody because I feel like Aaron's not paying attention to me. And like sometimes Aaron will recognize it and she'll say, Jordan, are you really just wanting attention? And it'll hit me like, oh, yeah, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> like, and so it'll be easy because then she'll come up and hug me and we'll be back on a good, good spot again. And another thing is in arguments, she asked me this question one time where sometimes I'll just be getting worked up and my emotions will get the best of me. And we decided, hey, look, sometimes when you see this happening, we just come hug me. So sometimes in the middle of an argument, when it's starting to pop off, she'll just come hug me and everything just calms down. We take five minutes and then we come back and we discuss it. Like those, those two things have been a game changer for us. Just kind of remind you like, like this, this sounds fucking crazy, but something I'll do is like, like just to remind myself that like, cause sometimes like inside of relationships, arguments be, can become so petty mm. that I literally will, I'll say this out loud too. Like, not like literally are we getting a divorce, but like just run through that in my head. And it's just like, this is so fucking stupid. Like there's, we're not getting divorced. We're not splitting up. This isn't the end all be all. Like whatever, you know what I mean? Just back down. It's yeah. just that's huge. And they, they talk about that in the five love languages is when you approach an argument. Um, we've, we've tried using this as well is to have almost like a safe phrase where you say, look, I love you. I'm with you. I'm not against you. So that almost reminds you that no matter what happens in this disagreement, we're together. We're in this together. Yeah. It's a disagreement. Like let's, and, and what that does, it's almost like a pattern interrupt, right? Like in marketing, mm -hmm. you, you drop the walls, everything becomes easier. You can look at each other in a different light. So that's a great practice to have. And Reminding yourself that your disagreements on the small things should never override your agreements on the big things. Yeah. Dude, what, what have you worked on personally and as a couple as far as like besides the love language, has there been any coaching, any mentoring or anything's like, I would say like, I know you, I think you guys both went to the Tony Robbins thing, but like, I'm just curious of like your guys' experiences with those types of things um, individually and together that you feel like have helped shaped like who you guys are as people because like not only are like you guys in unison together really great but like separately you're great human beings you know what I mean so like what has built up to that I think for me honestly we have not had a lot of uh, real professional like relationship work and that's something we're going to get into we might even hire a relationship coach here soon we're we're looking for one everybody's out there but uh you know I think we just observe other couples who have had a lot of success and we try to model after them mm -hmm. you know and just like we do as business owners like if there's one thing, like if, if there's a life you want to create, you know this, Cody, find somebody who has it and model them, you know, yeah. find ways to put your own spin on it. And obviously don't just copy them and become that person, but model what they've done. And we've done that with a lot of people who have relationships that we admire, you know, so, so there's that. And also I've, I've been in hundreds of hours of therapy personally with like um, psychotherapy and things just with like mental health issues that I dealt with in my early twenties. And anytime I would go to these sessions, like I've just retained so much these practices and these, these exercises that they apply on both sides, you know, because it's just working on yourself. So I would say that and in combination of just, just learning to reading, podcasting books, just listening, man, being open-minded. The best thing about this conversation right now, man, is like, 
you guys, like you just said, you're looking for a relationship coach. You've done the love language, you've done all these things. You continue to do all these things. I keep talking about how I continue to do all these things. We do it in business, fitness, relationship, everything. All these areas are good, but they can be great. And I think that's where people slip up. They, it's, I've had this conversation about meditation and people will wait till they're so stressed and anxious to like try to figure out meditation. I'm like, it's not going to just be like, sit down and you're going to be good. Like, You'll be anxious during meditation, but the point of meditation is a prehab so you don't get anxious, right? It's, it's to avoid anxiety. So I think people listening need to understand that you don't wait till something shitty to get coaching or advice or guidance. You do it so it can become great so it never gets shitty, right? Like, and, and I think even if something's good, it can be so much better if you dive into that stuff. Absolutely. Yep. You know, a big thing that, that's helped Aaron and I too, the last thing I'll say to that is, um, is question asking, you know? as coaches, a lot of times, like we run into this dichotomy where we want to tell solutions. We want to preach solutions. Aaron and I have become better at just asking each other better questions, allowing each other to come to certain conclusions. It's so much more powerful. Like if I'm in a bad mood or if Aaron's in a bad mood, it's kind of like, Hey, like, what can I do to make this better? Instead of saying, Oh, you're in a bad mood. You should be in a better mood, right? Just asking questions. And because we as people are defensive and I know I'm especially defensive. So instead of like coming at, you know, one another, it's just asking each other more questions. I love that, dude. That's huge. Um, I, I do want to shift gears just because I, I could probably talk about this shit forever, honestly, because I think it's so, so, it's so valuable. And even for people who aren't in a relationship, it's super valuable because, I mean, there's a lot of coaches listening. So a relationship with your spouse, the, the lessons you learn there can be a relationship applied to your clients, to your friends, to your colleagues, to your team. So like, take in what we're saying. It just makes you a better communicator, really, and a better leader. Yeah. But I want to shift gears into training and nutrition because I know people are going to want to pick your brain on that as well. Um, and the first thing I want to touch on is uh, your latest prep. So like just filling us in on like how that went, what the process was, the timeline, like how long was it, so on and so forth, and just kind of give us a rundown, and then I'm going to kind of pick that apart. Yeah, sure. So we started out, uh, my last show was at Junior Nats, would have been June, I think June 14th. So we did about a 24-week prep which now knowing my body was a little bit too long. I probably didn't need 24 weeks, but it, it ended up working out great. So what we did is I've got a very high metabolic output. I'm very high energy, as you can probably tell. Like I move a lot. My knee's really high. When I sleep, I'm bouncing all over the place. Like so, so I'm able to diet on a lot of food early. So this is like my third competition prep. And this is the hardest that I've had to push though. And I know we'll probably get into that some, but I started out from 24 weeks out to 15 weeks out. I was dieting on 550 grams of carbs. Uh, 330 protein and about 50 or 60 fat. So what I did is really kept Damn. carbs and protein where they were at. And I just cut fat in half. I think I was in a maintenance phase of about 120 fat. And then I would have uh, two rest days a week where I'd come down to, I think 400 carb. So that, I mean, I was able to lose basically like a pound, a pound and a half a week for, for 10 weeks like that. Everything was just moving great. I'm like, man, prep's easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, we had to push more. So from like 15 to 10 weeks out, I had to get I just put cardio in at that point. I put 30 minutes of listen in the mornings um, in one five interval hit session. And uh, I, I just knocked carbs down a little bit. So I went to 500 carb, uh, kept fats where they're at. And then it wasn't until about six weeks out that I really have to dig. And some people are going to be listening to this like, fuck you, we need dig. <laughs> but again, it's relative, right? I was hungry. But uh, the lowest I got was protein stayed where it was at, 330 protein. I went down about 240 carb on training days and 160, uh, two rest days a week. And that allowed me to get completely diets. I mean, the leanest I've ever gotten. So yeah, it was a, a successful prep, man. The best I've ever looked. I think people like, because I know like there are people listening and they get pissed about that. But we have to remember, A, like you, you're moving a lot. B, you have a high volume training plan, I'm assuming, because I know you, we have similar styles of training, but also like an energy gap is energy gap. So 
if you create an energy deficit of blank percentage, it's going to hit me the same way it would with me, even if I eat half as many carbs. Like it's the same psychological, physiological feeling. Um, it's hard for people to understand if they have to diet on low calories. And I'm one of those people, but because I know the science, I understand it. And I have like been side by side with people that are eating twice as many carbs, but feel just as shitty. So I like totally get it. Um, would you say that like, going into like for some people this obviously they're, they're not getting on stage but being on a higher carb approach while in a deficit allowed you to kind of stay harder and more full and, and keep training higher during a diet absolutely yeah without a doubt you know there's so many benefits to keeping carbs as high as you can you know i always preach that like we want to keep food as high as we can throughout a dieting phase you know not only the idea of obviously like to be able to to train hard have a better training response but also the effect on you know, adrenal hormones, adrenal function, and, and staying out of that sort of catabolic environment that being in a prep or a, a deep energy de deficit is going to provide. I mean, we're going to start to notice, like, especially as carbs reduce, and look, the, to, to paint some context, you know, carbohydrates are going to allow you to suppress some of these, these catabolic hormones, you know, it's going to allow cortisol to stay down more. And, you know, once, once carbs get low, you're starting to, you're going to run into things like increased epinephrine, you know, adrenaline response, um, you're going to start to become more CNS dominant and, you know, just higher stress loads on the body. That's going to start to affect, you know, you know, your digestion. It's going to start to impair those, those things. So, you know, the only, or one of the best ways to mitigate that, obviously in the diet phase are with like cyclical dieting, right? If you have periods of influx of carbohydrates, that's one way if you're dieting on low calories, but what's even better is if you can keep carbs fairly high, you know, and have that more just anabolic environment to, to stay, to not lose as much muscle tissue and not feel as shitty. I'm a big fan of that too, man. I think that keeping fats at like a minimal effective dose where like, you know, you're not going to like, I mean, regardless, if you go in a deficit, you go in a deficit, that's going to cause some hormonal issues eventually. But if you can kind of keep fats at that minimal end and then just crank carbs up, I, I just, I've personally seen great results with that. And then, like you said, training is so much better, which is kind of what I want to dive into next is like, what, what did your training look like throughout prep? And did that change as you went into a bigger deficit or did it just stay the exact same all the way through? Yeah, so uh, it, it did change. So basically starting out, you know, I'm a big fan of keeping intensity as high as you can and keeping load progression up there. Like even if you're maintaining load, you know, throughout the course of a, an energy deficit, like I look at that as progression. I mean, you mm -hmm. should. So that was a big focus of mine. Like down when we got into like the last six to eight weeks, we pulled a lot of big movements out, like a lot of big CNS stressing movements. I wasn't squatting or deadlifting. To me, when your body's in that stressed of state, like there's no reason for it in a lot of ways. Um, for a contest prep, that is, you know, lifestyle clients can be different, but we would, you know, I would try to keep my load 70 to hundred percent, you know, of, of one rep max, especially as we got deeper, I would pull total volume down, but try to keep loads as high as I could. So, you know, I might have gone down like towards the end of my prep to like 10 to maybe like eight to 12 working sets, you know, a session, but I'm trying to really keep intensity as high as I possibly can to continue to tell my body to keep this mass on as much as I can. And, uh, and if I had to do anything, it would simply be, you know, Instead of reducing load, I would just reduce like the amount of reps within that given set. And I, I always like taking that approach as compared to like, hey, we're going to pull load down and increase reps. Just doesn't make sense to me. So can you go into that a little bit? Because there's there's actually like a debate on that. Um, I'm actually pretty similar to you for honestly, one of the main reasons is, is adherence. Like if your volume's too high, you're in the gym way longer. <laughs> like, and then when you're in a diet, you're not motivated to do that. Um, but I've seen like, actually when I did, I've only been on stage once, but when I did my prep, I had the exact same approach. It was like, I was still hitting some fives, like just really trying to keep my strength high. And there's an argument from the neural side of like, you got to do that. And then there's the argument 
um, of the high volume side of like, you got to keep volume higher. And some people even say bring volume up as you go on the diet to make sure you maintain muscle mass. But like, what's your reasoning behind not going that route? And obviously it worked because you maintained quite a bit of muscle. Yeah, well, uh, I, I think you can make arguments on both sides, both sides for sure. And, you know, I think maybe, for example, if you're, I think it depends a big, a big thing, like on the individual and how strong they are, like how much load are they actually placing on the body? For example, like a small female who can handle a lot more total volume, you might want to keep volume a little bit higher throughout a diet phase because their, their nervous systems are able to handle it. Like it's not as much stress on the body as compared to me. Like if I'm, you know, back squatting like 400 pounds, like for, for a lot of volume, that's ultimately going to take the toll on the body, you know, and furthermore, like in a hypochloric environment, our body's going to just have lower amounts of just anabolic drive, just muscle building capacity. So we just can't synthesize as much protein into muscle as when we have more food available. So by creating all of this like micro trauma and, and, and things that come as more of a result of like, you know, metabolic stress, and a lot of volume, we don't have the same repair capacity. So I just think from a standpoint of that as combined, combined with the, the total like neurological stimulus of heavy loads, almost telling your body, hey, there's a reason to keep this muscle on your body because we have this other like tomorrow we're gonna have to lift that same amount of weight. To me, I've just always kind of gone that route, but I do think it can be debated either way. I 100% agree, man. I, I... I've always thought that way until recently, not that my mind has changed, but recently I've uh, not throw anybody under the bus. I, I want to say I've, it was Mike Isratel who was like really big on increasing volume, which he's like, he's obviously a volume guy. He loves volume. So, um, and I'm not saying he's wrong. He's smart as hell um, and he gets great results. So, yeah. but I remember him saying he actually likes increasing volume into a deficit. And to me, I'm just like adherence wise. I'm like, yeah, I don't even, I don't even know if I could do that. He's got some interesting, you know, perspective around that stuff for sure. And I, like you said, obviously he gets results, but uh, yeah, maybe obviously enhancements come into play there. Like, you know, as you go deeper into a diet phase, usually anabolics are going up. If that's the case, yeah, maybe we can continue to ramp volume up. You're probably even going to grow within that phase. But yeah, there, man, that's, that's tough. There was a good debate between Mike, Mike and uh, who was it that he was debating on this? And the big debate was, you know, volume and intensity as compared to like using reps and reserve and, and other metrics like that to mitigate some more volume, less intensity, vice versa. It was a really good debate. Who was he debating with? Was um, it um was it on Steve's podcast? Steve Hall? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was that British guy, right? Oh man, I can't remember his huge name. Dude. Huge dude. Yeah. Like, for uh, some Jordan reason I want to say I was gonna, okay, I was gonna say Jordan Peters, but I didn't know if that was oh no, Jordan Peterson is the psychological guy. Okay, yeah. yeah Peters, he's like a fucking tank, you know, and, and he's he's big on that. He's big on keeping intensity and load. Uh, the main priorities, you know, as compared to volume. So it was a good debate where at the end of the debate, it's like neither one of us are right, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really what it comes down to is what is it going to fit you better, right? Like what works better um, inside your diet during the prep 24 weeks is a long time. How much flexibility did you allow yourself? And like, if you can kind of paint that picture as far as like how you relate that to your clients, like if somebody's getting on stage, obviously the standards a little bit higher, it's a little bit more specific, but even with your clients who are just trying to get really lean and they're very serious like how much flexibility is okay to get that lean i guess is what <clears> I'm yeah asking. well I, again it, it you know it definitely depends on the total caloric load like for me i was able to fit a lot of stuff in my calories even late into my diet like i would usually this is just how i like to diet too and and look i always tell my clients this too that I, i'm not a big believer on setting yourself up to struggle just for the sake of struggling like if you want to set some things in your diet that are going to allow you to, to mitigate this process, I, I believe in doing it again, just to, to, uh, to eliminate or reduce that risk of just completely falling off and going fucking and throwing the baby out with the bathwater. 
So I would fit like, you know, pancakes in my diet every, in my food every single night on training days. I would have about 100 grams of carbs and pancakes. And it was just something I looked forward to. It was something I loved. I'll do that right before I went to bed. And I still got down to, you know, my glutes were completely etched out. Like it, it didn't hurt anything. And so, yeah, I'm a big believer in, in flexibility, man, even in the diet or even in a contest prep. Unless, look, if you're dieting on 1300 calories, you just, you just can't afford to fit in things that are going to cause, you know, micronutrient deficiencies, fiber deficiencies. Like, I'm sorry, but life's not really fair. You know, you've got to look at it that way. Like, as long as you're hitting those minimum requirements, you know, you don't get extra credit for extra micronutrients, in my opinion. So like, you've got to make sure you get your baseline and your needs met. But if you're dieting on a high amount of calories, you just got more wiggle rooms. So that's how I always present it to clients. That's perfect, man. It's, it's kind of like a checklist, right? Like, fiber check, water check, micronutrients check. And if like you do those things, go be flexible, right? Yeah. That, that's sure. exactly it. If you have plenty extra room after those checklists, which in your case you did, go for it. You know what I mean? So I think that's huge. Um, let, let's touch on like beginners versus advanced because we're talking about the advanced individual right now, obviously being you, but we both work with a lot of beginners as well. I think we both have a good spectrum across the board. So I'm just curious, so like what are the main differences you see? We'll touch on training and diet. What are the main differences you see in training between advanced and beginners? And I think this is really important for people to hear because with all the research on volume, people see a number and they're like, oh, this is how many sets I have to do to grow. I want to grow as much as possible. But it's like, you're like on the spectrum down here, not up here. And there's such a big bell curve for all these different modalities, whether we're talking about training splits, volume, intensity, anything. But I'm just curious for you, like, what are the biggest differences that you take into consideration? Yeah, so I, just to kind of keep it simple, you know, if you're a beginner lifter and novice, your two main priorities, in my opinion, should be learning the movements, like understanding your own biomechanics in a way that you're finding movements that fit you well. And let's, let's find a few of those movements and let's really get, get good at them. And, and let's focus not on drop sets and all these intensity techniques. Let's get away from all that. Let's just focus on getting very strong and efficient within those movements. So, you know, within those early lifters, like let's just say one to two years, I like focusing on load progression, you know, more than anything else. Load progression within good functional like reps. Let's make sure each rep counts and then slowly increase load. I don't want to focus on like volume progression on rep progression right there because you know, when you're early in your training years, like you can get so strong so quick and then you can take that strength and then apply that more in a hypertrophic setting, you know, later in your lifting career. But man, you, like let's take advantage of that, that new nervous system and get you adapted. Let's get you strong. And it's fun too, man. I remember when I first started lifting, like going in and just seeing those, those strength progressions are a fun time. So I like taking advantage of that, you know, and maybe once they get into that, like two to five year mark and you're more of like an intermediate lifter, Maybe we're going to increase, you know, total working sets per body part. You know, maybe it's 13 to 15 over whatever your frequency is. And let's, uh, you know, increase load and maybe like reduce reps over the duration of a block. And, you know, throw in some more things like that, like more uh, progression metrics. Maybe we'll throw in some, some supersets and some, uh, you know, more metabolic phase or metabolic stress type stuff. Once you get into advanced, that's where I like just getting more detailed. Hey, we're going to throw in some like RP sets. We're going to throw in some ways to create more volume while keeping the load high as well, you know? Like, that's why I love rest pulse sets, especially for advanced guys. Like, that's one uh, Mike Isratelli uh, thing that I, I take away from is a lot of rest pulse sets. Yeah, uh, I'm actually curious about this. And I just, just did a podcast called uh, 21 Program Design Hacks. And the whole thing I talked about were like these intensification factors you're talking about. Rest pause, drop sets, uh, myo reps, all these different things. And the way I approached it was like, hey, like these aren't backed by science because if you le read the literature of what these these researchers are talking about, it's like 
all that stuff just probably fatigues you and lowers volume. Like volume is what matters. Straight sets are better because you have longer rest period. You can like manage fatigue better. And I, when I look at it, I'm like, from research, yes, but from coaching, like that's boring as fuck and it's not yeah. applicable. So I guess I'm curious of like, how often do you put those kind of fun things in there? Because to me, like one of the, like, especially cause I worked with people in person in the gym for six years, like it's important to make sure people are having fun. They're challenged, right? Like, so I almost place that at a higher level than volume sometimes. Like, would you, would you agree with that at all? Yeah, totally. Yeah, for sure. And again, it's, it's fun. And there's not a lot of research on it. You're right. But there's not a lot of research in general on, you know, people who have been training for 10 plus years, or eight plus years, seven plus years. And there's this debate, and I'd be interested on, on your opinion, like, it's, I've never seen a single piece of, of evidence that shows that hypertrophy occurs in the absence of just mechanical tension. You know, like they might show, yeah, metabolic stress can occur and, and cause hypertrophy, but with mechanical tension, right? Like, actual like it, it just seems like volume becoming the main driver the main proponent of muscle growth is almost like short-sighted like because it's never the case in the absence or absence of mechanical tension so like how do we create the most mechanical tension within a movement like i think that should be prioritized especially with advanced lift lifters like how do we set our bodies up in a way where we can literally isolate that muscle and get as much mechanical force on that muscle as humanly possible and focus it on that and then throwing in some drop sets and things that are fun it just changed the game, in my opinion. I agree. I think uh, I 100% agree. Because, and I think a good example of that is there's a lot of people. I remember training with people that would do low volume programs, and they were huge, but yeah. they had a skill of lifting. And I think that's where people forget. Like, and that's why I actually like how you said like you start beginners with more like load progression and, and like kind of like motor unit stuff, like getting your neurological system like functioning properly because there's merit to the skill behind exercise, the skill behind muscle activation, behind movement patterns. And I actually think that, I mean, that's literally the key to mastering mechanical tension. And I think when you look at studies, they don't have like, I don't even know if there is a way to judge this or, or base study on like only taking candidates who have a good skill behind exercise. Like, how can you even do that? So I would agree with you 100%, man. You're right. You know, and you look at some of the guys who are just jacked and you watch them lift, they look fucking awesome when they're lifting. Like mm -hmm. they look different. Like they just got so much more just uh, control and flow. And like you look at how they position their bodies, you know, guys like uh, Joe Bennett and some of these dudes, they're very intentional with like finding out how to position their body. So they're placing the most amount of stress on that muscle they're trying to stimulate. And, and man, that, that, especially when you start thinking about that, when you're training, it does change the game because then you can progress in intensity and you're feeling it there, right? So you know, okay, once you start to really feel that specific muscle work, and then you start to progress and load, you start to feel that muscle work less. It's like a self-protective thing. You're like, oh, okay, I must not be putting that tension on that muscle that I need to. So let's back the load down and focus more on control. Like, especially as you get more advanced, where you're just not going to be able to throw stacks on your, you know, stacks of load on your progression spreadsheet. Like, it's just not going to be the case. Like, focusing more on how you feel that muscle working. Yeah, 100%. And, and like you said, positioning your body, like learning more about resistance curves and things like that actually helps a lot in biomechanics in general. Because like you said, like, maybe you're even at advanced level, maybe your squat's still progressing, but very yeah. little, right? But your curl, your push down, your lat pull in your dip, like, really goes so far and only spends so much time adding so much volume. So how can you manipulate those movements to master them? And Joe Bennett's a really good example. If you look at his programs, it'll say like three sets of six to 12. And you're like, six to yeah. 12 that's a huge fucking rep range but if you read the notes it's like look at your rir and focus on the tension like when you hit that point you're done like yep. but you got to master that movement i think that's so huge but 
again, I think this comes back down to skill and why I think too many people are impatient at like kind of going through that phase in their career training career of like learning that skill. Yeah, no, for sure. <clears throat> yeah. And we're, we're inundated too, because I know you're the same as me from a young age. We looked at training programs and like flex magazine and, you know, there was like 30 sets per day and you're like, Oh, that's how I have to train, you know, yeah. <laughs> to look like that. And, and I think that sticks with us sometimes. Like I get distracted sometimes by that too. You know? I remember doing a German volume training uh, program way back and it was just like crawling into the gym, dude. Cause it would be like 10 sets of 10 and then a bunch of other quads <laughs> work afterwards. Yep. I've done a lot of that too. It's funny. Fucking brutal. So like speaking of this beginner to advance, like let's talk on nutrition, like compared the two like beginners that you take into your coaching versus like people who are getting on stage that you're working with or yourself, where do you separate that? Like, is it just calories? That's all that matters until a certain point or like, how do you, what do you consider in that transition? If that makes sense? Yeah. So if I do have somebody that comes in, you know, it, we'll, we'll kind of categorize maybe an outlier subject for me. It's like somebody that comes in and I don't work with a lot of people who are like totally, totally brand new. It's just not the individual as I typically attract via my content and my audience, to be honest, you know, but if I were to have somebody like that, and I teach coaches that I work with on a mentorship level, this like, whatever you do, don't bring somebody in and throw the kitchen at them, you know, like, mm -hmm. give them macros to follow and just like throw them into a diet. You were talking about this on our podcast. Like, man, let's focus on lifestyle habits that we can we can measure. Because there has to be some unit of measurement, we can only manage what we can measure. So let's create some kind of a, a structure where they can hit certain little goals, movement goals, like maybe it's just steps. Let's focus on um, hydration, how much water are you drinking during the day? Okay, great. We check those off. Now let's focus on adding protein to each meal, right? It's a very easy tool to, to increase. It's just to make a lot of benefit. So we're going to do that. And then we'll slowly graduate them into maybe it's now let's calorie track. We're going to track calories, but hey, we got to make sure we have protein in every meal, right? We talked about that before. So now we're tracking calories. Okay, now let's track our protein. You know, you slowly graduate them. I think that's the only approach you can take to, like we talked about, give people those micro wins to build momentum. Because man, you know this, if you throw the sink at them, they're just going to freak out and run. Yeah. Even if, even if you do give them macros at the beginning, like that's got to be it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can't throw too much else at them. At, at what point do you start implementing more advanced strategies and what are those advanced strategies? Yeah. So the advanced strategies, number one, that I like to put in are going to be meal timing, but you know, meal timing is also important. You talk about this all the time and a beginner too. But, but it's a different uh, context of meal timing. For a beginner, it's meal timing with the goal of adherence, right? Like, how do we structure your meals that you're going to be able to, to eat the food I'm prescribing or the amount? Okay, now with more intermediate and advanced, now we're looking at putting meal timing in place to, for optimal results, optimal progression, mostly around training, because that's the period where we want to really optimize. I think it's a huge tool to, to utilize, but not at the expense of adherence, right? So once we get into that, you know, phase where we're ready to start timing things up. Like, all right, let's look at peri-workout. Let's really think about like how we want to structure your carbohydrate and protein intake around training. And I love intra-workout nutrition as well. Like, I think it's a huge opportunity to, to benefit in so many ways, which we can get into. But like, once they do move into that intermediate to advanced stage, I'm probably going to really focus on peri-workout nutrition. You know, how are we structuring this? How are you feeling around your meals? Like, uh, putting, in, putting in a good, you know, intra-workout protocol that's going to allow them, you know, we can talk about the benefits there. We can go on all day about that. But for advanced, we might get even more tedious around peri-workout. Like my advanced guys, I have them check their uh, fasted glucose for a period of time after training. Because I want to see if that that meal or not the meal, it's basically a meal, but the intra-workout shake they're taking in, you know, they've got EAAs, carbohydrates, you know, some sodium, and like they're, they're taking in basically a meal during their training. I don't want them to rush to a, another meal until they digested that last meal. 
because we're not going to benefit from utilizing those nutrients, right? Like, let's make sure our partitioning is at a good spot. So I want to wait, I want to tell them what they're going to do is they're going to learn how long does it take my body to get back into a good postperennial glucose range, usually 80, 85. So we'll test fasted glucose, not fasted, but postperennial glucose post-workout to find out how long that is for that individual. A lot of people, it's like an hour. So let's wait and eat for an hour. So that way we know that we're in a good spot. Our, our insulin and our, I mean, our blood glucose levels are down again, that we're going to partition those nutrients when we bring them in. Because otherwise, you're just fucking clogging your system with more food. I like that, dude. I've actually never heard of anybody using that as a tool post-workout. So that's really interesting. But it, it makes a lot of sense. And I know there's and I'd be interested on your thoughts on this because I've heard you talk about how um, you kind of are a high cortisol individual, high stress individual, just like you're kind of wired like that. Um, there's a link between cortisol and blood glucose as well. So I would assume like if, you're, if your numbers are staying too elevated post-workout, you haven't calmed down from that stress, right? So you might be able to mm -hmm. manipulate the carbs throughout the day based on that. Um, did you see differences in your prep or with your clients? in fasted glucose in the morning just based on stress at all? Or is it just purely different with, with food? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, yeah, so I actually have, like, I, I don't like saying the word suffer. When you say suffer, it makes you sound like you're, you've got some disorder or disease. Like, I have dawn phenomena uh, where individuals with this can often throw really high fasted glucose readings first thing in the morning. And that can become miscued data. Like, for me, it's because when I wake up in the morning, man, I'm anxious. It's just kind of how my nervous system is wired. Like you said, I'm kind of more type A, um, higher, you know, higher sympathetic driven. So in the mornings, if I check my fasted glucose, usually I'm like, you know, 90s, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not that my body's having trouble clearing glucose from my bloodstream per se. It's more so my cortisol is high in the morning. So my liver, therefore, is excreting cortisol, just a, a biofeedback mechanism that's, that's natural. So for me, for me to get like a baseline on my insulin sensitivity, I've got to check postperennial. And that's always golden. Like I'll check, you know, two hours after a meal, I'm down in the 80s. So that gives me more of a baseline read or getting blood work getting blood work and checking, you know, hemoglobin A1C or your actual fasted glucose um, from lab results is going to be way more accurate. So that's a great point. You know, when we're, when we're training, it's obviously creating a very sympathetic environment. Cortisol is going up, you know, adrenaline's releasing. Uh, you've got glucagon coming, you've got cortisol going up. So we're, we're creating a negative net protein balance within the body. So that, that's where having that carbohydrate source can become so beneficial. And, and then that way too, like you said, when you get out of training, your goal should be to blunt cortisol. One thing I do post-workout, I always take an adaptogen right away. Something like Morpocom, you know, it's like uh, a good KSM 66 with like theanine. It's got, you know, a lot of other just calming herbs and supplements. I'll take that and I'll come home and I'll take a warm shower. And that's what I'm trying to think about. I'm trying to think about calming down. And once I do that, once I feel like I'm calm, I usually take a good shit right after I work out too. That lets me know I digested that intra-workout shake. That's when I know my body's ready to take on another meal. It's so important for people to think about this stuff because people just think training and diet, but like calming down after workout is very underrated. I have uh, some athletes and in, in a guy I work with in WWE, um, some people that I've worked with in the past that were higher level athletes too, that it was like, hey, before you leave the gym, you got to do breathing because I don't know what you're going to go do at home. I don't know that you're going to go take a shower and take some adaptogens. I'm not with you, right? Like, so I want you laying down, feet up. I want you doing belly breathing until you calm down. And it's just like one of those things where, like you said, you got to shift into the parasympathetic. And, and another good point of what you just said is like understanding more about your stress and about uh, blood glucose levels and stuff. Because I've had a client, for example, who was worried about their blood glucose because it was high. So they were like cutting all carbs at all costs. And I was like, hey, man, like, I think like, because some people have high blood glucose, they think, oh, I need to go keto, reset my insulin sensitivity, so on and so forth. And I'm like, hey, man, like, I don't think that's the issue. I think you're just overly stressed. Like you wake up with high cortisol levels, so on and so forth. 
let's actually give you carbs. And then his, his numbers lowered. But a lot of people associate high numbers with diabetes and stuff like that. And they're like, oh, I got to regulate my insulin levels, maybe go low carb. And it's like, it's not always the case. Sometimes, yes, but not always. So it's good for people to like hear this stuff and just educate themselves better on it, really. Yeah, that's a great point. And look at the other symptoms. So if you think you're insulin resistant, and you're throwing these high numbers in the morning, like, don't just take that one piece of data and draw a conclusion, like, look at the other environment. Number one, are you fat, right? Like, are you, do you store body fat extremely easy? Is your digestion impaired? Like, are you having digestion issues? That's always a big symptom of, of insulin resistance. Um, are you having trouble getting pumps in the gym? Um, mentally, are you fatigued after meals? Like, look at all those other symptoms and draw a correlation there. You're right. Like, you can't just go off one, you know, one fasted glucose reading. Like, for me, when I did, I knew it was weird because I was super lean and I was in a deficit. So I'm like, I've been in a deficit for like eight weeks. I'm like, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I, you know what? Like, one of the, like, as we wrap up here, because I'm going to be gracious of your time, like, one thing oh, I've I'll noticed. <laughs> One thing I've kind of taken away from this podcast, man, and like listening to you in, in we've gone through your life story, business, relationship, fitness, and I didn't actually purposely target each area, but we kind of have gone through each area. Did you have a ton of awareness in every area and you're able to kind of like take a step back and question things and look at data and analyze and do it in a positive way, even with your relationship, which could be probably one of the hardest areas to do it because there is ego involved. There is comparison and competition involved and you're always trying to be right. Um, so man, like, I guess I'm just saying I respect the shit out of it, but I want people to step back and like, think about how much awareness you have. And I guess I ask you the question of like, have you ever thought about that? Like how much awareness you have? Do you ever strive for more awareness or is this just kind of naturally happen with what you surround yourself with? Yeah, no, I, I definitely do. I always try to make it very simple and I, I'll tell people like do more shit that gets a positive reaction and do less shit that gets a negative reaction. Like really simple and just start to draw the data in your own brain. But I don't know, I guess I've never really like acknowledged it, but like I said before, I've been around so many people who, who lack self-awareness uh, between, you know, my early uh, childhood male figures, like a lot of like extreme lack of self-awareness. So I think it's that, man. It's almost a curse though in a way where I tell Aaron this all the time, like I almost have like a, a bug or like a, something on my shoulder where it's like, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't say that. Mm. You shouldn't say that. So a lot of times I'll say things to Aaron and I'll be like, was that weird? Like, should I not have said that? I'll do that all the time. And I'll want to do that in public too, or on podcasts, I'll say something and I'm like, fuck, that was weird. I don't know if I should have said that, but it's, it's been a blessing in my life in a lot of ways because it has allowed me to gauge people's reactions and to make sure I'm not making people uncomfortable, you know? <laughs> yeah, I love that, dude. I think I honestly think self-awareness is one of the biggest, I guess it's not really a skill, but characteristics or, or thing people should be working on because it just applies to everything in life, man. Um, so similar to your podcast closing out, I want to do a couple like rapid fire ones just to like kind of pick your brain on some stuff. So the first one is, and these are going to be just random shit, but the first one is, is your favorite training split. Favorite training split <clears throat> for me, it's going to be actually what I'm doing right now. Uh, I could stay on this forever. So I'm doing basically it's just a five day split where I'm going, I'm going, uh, legs. So I'm going lower and, uh, basically it's like lower ham focused. So ham and glute development. Then the next day is going to be an upper body full upper. So I'm doing some shoulders. I'm doing some push, some pull. See, I'm, I'm adding volume on that second day altogether. And so I go two days on one day off and then I go three days on. So then I go lower quad dominant. So less like, you know, nervous system fatiguing, more quad, a lot more volume. And then I go uh, a push and pull, then repeat. And that for me has been a split that I found to really work well with me, um, especially in the areas I'm trying to develop, which is hamstrings for, for the most part. I love that, dude. I actually like one of my favorite splits ever is uh, upper, lower push, pull legs. So very, very similar. Five days a week, upper. I, I actually kind of tried to twist it like, uh, I mean, you're from Columbus, so you'll appreciate this. The conjugate method of like, 
max effort and dynamic effort, but yeah, I'll do like yeah. repetition effort on those last three days. Yeah, same concept for sure. Yeah. All right. So favorite music to listen to while you're lifting? Man, just lately, it's uh, so I went to my first music festival recently. I don't know if you're into music festivals, but uh, I've always thought EDM music was kind of weird and never my thing. Yeah. So I went to one music festival. Now I'm just like an EDM junkie. So I'm listening to like <laughs> hardcore bass shit that I used to laugh at people for. Um, that's just as, as of like two weeks ago. Before that, it would have definitely been like hard, more like soulful, like uh, a lyrical hip hop, um, things that I can kind of vibe with, like follow the rhythm to. Uh, or a lot of times, this seems weird, but I used to listen to a lot of podcasts when I would lift. And then I would shut it off during my working set um, and just try to get in my head. Yeah, I, I'm, I feel like I, I listen to podcasts while I'm warming up. And then I got to turn off because I end up focusing more on that than my lifting. And it just fucks with me. Yeah, for sure. It would allow me to take more sufficient rest times. Like a lot of times I'll want to just rush through my workout and chase fatigue over, you know, trying to beat my logbook. So if I have a podcast on, it would force me to sit down for like one or two minutes and listen to it. Then I'd shut it off and go into my work set. Yeah. All right. Favorite podcast. That was actually the next question besides your own. Favorite podcast. Definitely the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, man. Um, sure make me blush here, man. Come on. <laughs> your podcast is definitely up there in my, in my top three um, as far as what I listen to on a regular basis. The other one, uh, it's kind of it's kind of cliche, but Joe Rogan's podcast is man, it's it's fucking awesome. Can't go wrong with it. Just such a diverse range of topics. And there's another one that has helped me a ton. That um, it's kind of a lesser known one. Well, Radio Lab would be kind of a, uh, I guess asterisks in there. But uh, it's one called Mixed Mental Arts. It's by a guy named uh, Hunter Motts and um, uh, what's the other guy's name? Uh, Brian Callen, the comedian. Fucking great podcast. Just for other like worldly issues, like from from. Uh, from like history, socioeconomics, like finance, like it just gives you such a broad range of topics. This Hunter Motz is a Harvard professor. And then you have a comedian who's also a PhD historian. So they have such great conversations. It's a good podcast. Oh yeah, I'm gonna check that out. What's your uh, what's your favorite Joe Rogan podcast episode? Favorite ever, man. There's probably, so many. <laughs> yeah, for sure, probably any one with Jordan Peterson. Yeah, yeah, that's the actually. To be honest with you, I've I've only heard one with him. That's the first and only time I've actually ever listened to Jordan Peterson. I'm not. Uh, it's not that I don't appreciate what he does. I just haven't dug into him. And everybody I've talked to, like once they dive into his shit, they just like consume everything. Yeah, he's good. I would definitely recommend that book, man. 12 Rules for Life. Yeah. All right. So next question is, what are you currently reading right now? And what is your top book ever? Yeah, so I'm currently reading a book right now. It's funny. Guys are going to listen to this and be like, man, he's such a softie. It's called Attached. And it's a relationship book. Uh, and it's about I just started, I'm only like, Emily Duncan actually got it for us. So it's a, it was a gifted and it's a great book so far, but it's about like the early childhood tendencies that we have and how they play out in relationships later on. Mm -hmm. So um, it's been pretty good so far, but what was the second part to that? Uh, best book ever. Best book ever, man. My favorite book ever is definitely um, A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's just, uh, that's a book that I come back to all the time. Anytime that I'm going through a period in my life where I feel like I need to reevaluate and reinterpret struggle. And, and, to, and to create more, uh, more uh, perspective around anything. Like that book will literally reshape your perspective. I don't care what you're going through. It's, it's a powerful book. A Man's Search for Meaning. I'm going to look that one up because I haven't read oh, that man. yet. Yeah, you'll love it, dude. It's a quick read too. Like you can read it in a, in a couple of days if less than that. It's such a good book. Oh, perfect. I'm going to look that up. All right, next one is favorite place you've ever traveled to and the number one place you want to travel to. Hmm. Number one place I want to is definitely British Columbia or Whistler. Um, you know, oh, yeah huge snowboarders that's up that's at the bucket list uh favorite place i've ever traveled to probably probably prague that was a really cool city um i went there and i got to i, I did some like backpacking after college in europe so i was able to go to like the uh 
Salvador Dali ex exhibition. And, um, you know, I got to go to like some Holocaust museums and then party, like partying in Prague is, is crazy. It's really fun. I can imagine. Um, Prague's just a cool city. That was the favorite, my favorite from a exploration standpoint that I've ever been to. Is I'm so horrible with geography. What, what country is that in? Uh, Prague is in um, uh, the Czech Republic. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. 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 I, every, I feel like everything in that general area is just beautiful, dude. Like compared to, I mean, I love America, but fuck, like some of the places, my mom just got back from a big trip. I have a lot of family in Hungary. So she just went to Budapest and Germany and I want to say Austria too, but she went to all these different places and just seeing pictures. I'm just like, that's like a normal town to them. Like, that's crazy. The castles and the architecture. Yeah. It's just, it's another world. It's so cool. It's wild, man. So, so the last one is if you could pick one single person that could be dead or alive to sit down and just have a conversation with, who would that be? Cannot mm. be friends or family. Hmm. Man, that, that's definitely a tough one. Let me just think really quick here. I know this is rapid fire. Uh, probably, it's, never, it's never actually rapid fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, it'd probably be my guy there, Albert Einstein. Um, oh, yeah. Just, just to pick that dude's brain because he had such a – either him or Mark Twain. Mark Twain would be up there too. But just such a – you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of people who can interpret and – just like you have that ability, Cody, uh, can interpret and dissect complex things and make them relatable and digestible and, like, Albert Einstein's always been good with that, you know, in any of his, his lectures and his, his writings, like he's able to take, you know, quantum physics and break them down into a pretty simple way to understand it. So I think that would be fun to sit next to him. Yeah, man, that's a great answer. Well, dude, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, spending time with me, man. It's always a blast talking to you. We're going to be together here in less than a month. No, just over a month. I mean, uh, hanging out and getting to actually do this over dinner in the gym and shit like that. So I'm super yeah. excited to see you, but, um, anything you have to drop on the people so they can go check you out, follow you, get whatever you've released or anything like that you want to shout out. Yeah. So, uh, you guys can find me at, um, Doug aesthetics. So it's D U G G aesthetics. I'm sure most people listen to this know how to spell that word, but, uh, you can find me there on Instagram. Best way to get in touch with me. If you guys ever have questions, you ever want to ask anything, even around stuff we discussed on this podcast, please feel free. Uh, the one thing that I would uh, mention is Aaron and I have created for specifically for online coaches to, um, it's basically a three day uh, suspect to client challenge. So it's a marketing built challenge that it's all basically going to take you through uh, three days of mini trainings as to better get clarity around your message, who you're trying to impact, how to create trust within your audience and how to kind of basically help more people. Um, so that's a, a free challenge that we're offering. You can find that on my Instagram as well. But yeah, other than that, again, reach out to me if you guys need anything at all. I always love interacting with people. Perfect, man. I'm going to link both of those in the show notes. We got a lot of coaches listening. So, dude, thank you again for your time. Yeah, man. I appreciate you, Cody. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering. And because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation 
to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at Cody at BoomBoomPerformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation. Jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.